everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, Borag Thung, Earthlets. <laughs> this is the Smorgasbord, a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaports, the best online and unusual source for comic books, news, reviews and previews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Sequart is on Patreon, supports smart criticism in comics. Yeah, we should mention two things for this episode. The first is that there's a new Sequart book just coming out. The best there is at what he does, Examining Chris Claremont's X-Men by Jason Powell. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm always up for more discussion of Claremont's X-Men. Mm-hmm. And we should mention that Sean... Sean has betrayed me, and he has a new podcast on the side, as it were. Oh... Okay, we're While doing I that was then. away on vacation. You see, this just goes to show you, you can go and cheat on me with 20 other podcast hosts, but when I do it, all of a sudden, it's a big thing. Well, they're in so. Hebrew, so, you know, <laughs> our English listeners don't know. So, yes, I've started a new video game podcast with Boris Ulyansky. We're on iTunes. We're called Games of Future Past. <laughs> uh, Speaking of X-Men. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So, uh, look us up. And this is our post-NYCC recording, so there's lots of stuff. Now, we won't talking about all the actual comic, new comics announcements simply because yeah. they will be up naturally as, as we do the previews every month. Yeah, we'll get to so, the previews. We'll discuss them yeah. when and if they actually do come out. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, we are back from hiatus. We had a little skip week. Yeah. So, so shall we start NYCC. with the uh, Netflix movie news or the no, terrible no. stuff? Okay, okay. So let's start with the bad stuff and then like move okay. our way upwards towards positivity. Okay, now during NYCC, Peter David, yeah. as long oh, as uh, several other people, were part oh, of a panel on LGBTQ representation in comics. Tom, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't, we have been doing the smorgasbord for two years now. And in all that time, there were maybe a handful of stories that I really didn't feel good about discussing because they were legitimately painful. Yeah. This is one of them, but we so, have to do it. I guess, I guess. So during, during the panel, one person stood up and asked a question about the representation of Romani people in comic books. And Peter David, one of the panelists, decided to segue into an odd racist riot. This thing is online. Somebody recorded it. Somebody actually uh. photo- put it on YouTube, I believe, about how when he was during the 1990s vacation in Romania, he saw, you know, children with broken legs. And one of his guides told him that Romani people apparently do that. And he believed him as this being a black statement on all Romani people everywhere. Romani people break, apparently break children's legs in order so, to gather sympathy to get money from tourists. That's something that Peter David, out of every, out of all people, had said. Listen, in that video that you can see on YouTube, halfway through his racist Eric Cartman diatribe, this woman on the right turns her head around to the person who's recording it. She's like, she has this look on her face like, whiskey, tango, foxtrot, what the hell? And I'm telling you, I was watching that video and it was like a talking head song. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful car. What the hell? Yeah, it's Peter not. David. Yeah, and Peter David, people, the man who <sighs> I'd say more than almost any other writer, certainly more more than any other writer of, the, let's say, the old guard, the people who started writing in the 70s and 80s, made a point about using his comics to advance progressivism, to yeah. include people of color, LGBTQ people, 
Romani people. Like he that himself not... said, he wrote Pietro Maximoff. He made this character something real and concrete and not just, you know, an old villain punch up. The really frustrating thing here is that like th- when we say that, like there are receipts that we could point to. There are specific details. Like if you look at the history of this person's writing, this is someone who wrote an AIDS storyline for Sam Wilson's cousin Jim to prove that AIDS wasn't a gay plague and that AIDS victims deserve compassion. This is, this is someone, someone who wrote a Muslim character in a post-9-11 world and made a point of using her to make speeches about the wrong way America treated yeah, its and, Muslim population. And had J. Jonah Jameson give that speech, right? This is someone who took Richter and Shatterstar, who after years of subtext never got to go there and made them a couple, right? It's... And here he is disparaging an entire culture to the face of a fan from that same culture. He even blamed political correctness and the media for negative backlash. So I'm and... like, look, this guy signed on to the Trek against Trump movement and he's like channeling Donald Trump now. And I get if, you know, if he was asked that question, the panel was asked that question, he would get up and say, this is not the subject of this panel. You're trying to hijack the panel for your own That's needs. That's not and we're true, not do- No, no. If he would have done that, it would have been a bit rude. No, he would have been, been wrong. Okay, that would have been would've... within his purview. To just go on a racist diatribe? No, hang on a second. Let's be very clear here, because the... Statements from people who were at the panel said very clearly, despite the fact that the subject of the panel itself was LGBT representation, the actual discussion between all of the writers, Chris Claremont was there as well. Mm-hmm. The discussion was not just about LGBT. It was made, there was a ah. discussion point that Kitty Pride and the thing were Jewish and how that played out when they were being ah, written. Okay, okay. So this was not a situation. Now, yes, obviously the person who made the comment turned out to be uh, an activist who was trying to raise awareness of Romani representation, pointing out that DC and Marvel, on the whole, don't usually do the best job with Romani characters, and, well, that much is factual, right? Yeah. That's, that's, you know, Quicksilver keeps being brought up as an example, but he's about as Roma as I am Inuit. I mean, let's be realistic here. So... Attempting Are there to descri- any actual Roma people in Marvel and DC? The <sighs> only one I can think of outside now. of the Maximoff twins is Gypsy from DC Comics. And, I'm, and someone okay. actually made a point a few years ago to retcon it away so she wasn't actually Romani because he said, that's the best of a bad lot, right? We, I'm we- going to blow your mind now, Tom. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, Nightwing is Romani. All right, right, right. And the great. fact... But you see, the fact that you didn't even remember that tells you everything you need to know about how relevant that is to his background, yeah. right? So, like, there is something there. And for – so uh, fans of Peter David tried to say, oh, you know, he hijacked the panel. I'm like, look, even if he had hijacked the panel, and clearly they weren't limiting discussion points to LGBT representation, what Peter David did was basically – the it's the Mexicans are rapists thing. That's exactly what he did. He got up and said, don't talk to me about Romani representation because they all mutilate their children so they can beg better because the tour guide told me that 30 years ago. I just, I really, it's I don't lunacy. get it. It's like he's lunacy. gone from Peter David to Frank Miller in five seconds flat. How? How did this happen? And like, 
I, I'm not going to lie. I lost a lot of respect for the man, not just because of this comment that was bad enough, but because when he tried to apologize on his blog afterwards, he said, you know, he recognized that what he did was completely out of line. And of course, everyone who knows him knows he's not a racist. And that gesture would have been sufficient, except he added a paragraph where he said basically that, oh, you know, the fan was being unreasonable because he had these demands. And I'm like, oh, God, you're, you're, you're turning into Paula Dean before our very eyes. Like, why could you just not stop talking? You know, just, it, it's, it's, it was it was crushing to me because Peter yeah. David is someone that I have held in high esteem for so many years. I've been a fan of his for almost 20 years. And he just went full Bill Willingham on a women's panel, just talking garbage and not even recognizing, you know, and, and in fact, there were people on his blog that were trying to sort of flip the script around and say, you know, if Peter David had been in the audience talking about Jewish representation and someone had said, well, you know, a tour guide 30 years ago told me that Jews bake, uh, you know, their bread with like the blood of children or whatever. I don't know, whatever kind of crazy ass stereotype is out there. He would have been horrified. The fact that he cannot see that... Yeah, th there isn't enough blood within the bodies of children for us, to, ba for us I mean, to bake. Listen, we need at least, you know, adult size if you want to have yeah. like a nice loaf, you know? Yeah, but... Okay, so... But the terribleness did not stop there. No, it this did not. Was, this wasn't actually at the con, but it, was, it came out at the exact same day, and I'm still not sure how to pass it out. There's this blog called Destroy Comics, which was... Apparently, for a long time, a fan blog for the art of Paul Pope, and you know, Paul Pope, a great artist, well celebrated for his uh, for his writing and drawing, and now the writer on this blog accuses Paul Pope of several instances of sexual harassment. Beep beep. And he, usually that would have been you know red flag because we had so many cases of that over the last few years that all of them. All of them have been proven absolutely correct, right? The accusation yeah. was made, and a short time later, somebody discovered it. Yeah, it's true. But the thing is that... Have you read the text? It's a very I'll long... tell you what the thing is. I, mm -hmm. I, did, I read the text, but as I was reading it, I remember this was not the first time that that specific claim... I think when it happened last year, or, or uh, 2014 is when the event happened... I, there was talk at the time that something had had gone on with Paul Pope and people were sort of like I, I, re I because I don't remember that but you no, know I, I remember like there were there are rumors. so many instances that you forget goddammit. it yeah no no but, but the point is like that the, the post was just weirdly rambling on at, you know as it went on and changed the subject from Paul Pope's you know physically accosting people and then forcing them to do stuff into well he made racist jokes on Twitter and his There was actually a whole passage about how his art is as good as it used to be, and what's what's the connection? I'm not and really the, and comfortable. Then, and then Brandon Graham, who apparently was one of the sources for the stories about Pope getting drunk over his head, said on his own Twitter that you know the person who wrote the post took it out of context and he never meant these things. So, and Brandon what? Graham is usually right on point on calling out people who do you know sexually douchey things. So. I don't feel comfortable criticizing like the the form of a post that accuses Paul Pope of sexual harassment. Like I'm I'm inclined to believe the person accusing him regardless of the fact that it doesn't look like I mean like there are problems with the structure or whatever. Uh Brandon Graham, I don't know what his deal is. 
But I don't know. Like there was, because I remember hearing about that incident with the girlfriend and, and all that story. I know that I had heard that before, but now it just sort of like was presented yeah. in its entirety. Uh, it was and, not... Yeah, and even if only these things are true and the writer is exaggerating several things from other sources, it's still, you know, terrible it behavior. It's, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, you know, keep your hands to yourself. And if you're the kind of guy who drinks and d because you're drunk, you, you tend to become handy or whatever, don't drink with other people. That was Scott Alley's it, defense, too. Yeah, you're responsible for the actions that you do. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I'm in love. And if it's... drinking makes you irresponsible, well, you shouldn't drink in company. You should oh, seek help. Oh, uh, God. Um, it's just like, I don't understand what is going on with these people. What and, is and, wrong you know, with them? And a day them? later, the Devin Farasi thing happened. And thank Devin Farasi. <laughs> It's not like it, no. The, and he just started he writing did. comics, so I guess technically he is under our purview. But we're not going to talk about it. But you know, no, we're not going to talk about it in detail. I'm just going to say like it's the the what he did not funny, but the timing of that happening as he's starting to write comics like Welcome to the Club, I guess. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know. I don't understand why it is so. Why it? Is, well, no. Okay, no. I do understand why it's so pervasive because of the situation where. And listen, I I don't know exactly, because I did not read Brandon Graham's comments on this, so I don't, I'm not in a position to evaluate what's going on over there, but it's like, there is enough evidence and enough questionable action in the comics industry that maybe, you know, getting into the details of, like, Paul Pope and what did he do and what did he not do and what did he say when he was drunk and he was sober, it's like, look, act like a damn professional. Yeah, this comic, comic as a culture, in we're talking about American, uh, British comics, whatever, it's still such a boys club that there's, you know, that what Trump eloquently called the locker room talk, which shouldn't be yeah. because... I've been in several locker rooms and, you know, I've managed to keep my hands and my mouth to myself. It's a locker room from hell, maybe. Maybe like one of the, the seven circles or and nine circles or whatever. Whenever that thing happens and, you know, it's Gross. always... And it's, it's terrible to the people that it was done to. And, you know, you're like, should I... Can I read new Paul Pope stuff? Will I buy it? Will I give him my money now? Well, let me put it this way. Like, I'm thinking here of, I mean, Paul Pope specifically is never an artist that I supported anyway. So, you know, I, to I, say that, I, I'm a big Paul Pope fan. Okay. You know, I love his like, stuff. Yeah. Know? But like, I can sympathize with you with the, with the dilemma. Like, what am I supposed to do with Peter David now? Right. Mm. And to be completely honest with you, I don't have an answer for that. Like, I can tell you that I would think twice before picking up. Cause like what he, what David did specifically, because there's video, because it's like, here is all of the evidence. It's, it's and is, yeah, it's unquestionable. Yeah, there is no, and his so apology. He, his apology was terrible. His apology was a non-apology. So when I look at him, I'm like, look, there's no ambiguity here, right? Like this is basically like he went down with Orson Scott Card. Pretty much that for all of his years of activism, for everything that he's done, for all that he has worked so hard to push progressive views. Here we are with like, well, everyone except the Roma, I guess. Screw them. So, you know, it does change sort of your perspective on, on whether or not you want to support them. Paul Pope, I figure it's the same way, right? Like, you have these accounts. You ha It's a decision that each of us has to make 
for ourselves. I will say, like, this is not the thing. So far, turn... by the way, no response at all from Paul Pope. Well. That I'm aware of. I looked up on Twitter and, you know, Facebook I mean, or whatever and nothing. I mean, look, I, I don't want to, you know, innocent until proven guilty. That much is, is yeah, true. Yeah, but... but on the other hand, in this industry, it says so much that it is so easy for me to believe that, right? If Scott Alley could get away with it and Eddie Braganza could get away with it and everybody else could get away with it, then why not Paul Pope? <sighs> Let's talk comics and maybe something away uh, from, like, You want to start with the TV stuff? Well, no, I, I want to start with the comics news, oh, actually. Oh, because oh, actual there, comics comics. Actual comics comics news, because there were some interesting things going on over here coming out of NYCC. Uh, Wildstorm? Wildstorm. So, Wildstorm is coming back helmed by Warren Ellis. It's going to be a subprint... Uh, a sub-imprint similar to Young Animal. Yeah, yeah. It's like sort of within DC, but not really part of the DC universe yeah, as far like, as I understand it. It's like in and out. It's own little thing. And the book so far that they've announced is that it's going to start with something called The Wild Storm by Ellis <laughs> and John Davis Hunter. You know, you know, you it's a argue f- with title. I'm sorry, it's a funny name. I mean, look, after World uh, th- Then Storm, again, this is the imprint that gave us Wild C.A. T S right yeah which is it's one not, of the it's books not Wildcats it's Wild C A T S which is one of the books that's coming back along with Zealot and something called Michael Cray I, I don't know what that is cover action team so okay Wildstorm is coming back as an imprint helmed by Warren Ellis Tom are you feeling any particular deja vu at this moment maybe about another dead imprint that Warren Ellis tried to bring back a couple of years ago and. Did not work out so well. Sean, I know you're not talking about the new universe because you nobody, ta- know. No, nobody <laughs> talks about the new universe. It's the like new Fight U- Club, but there are no rules. It's just everybody <laughs> pretend it never happens. New universal. Again, like I... Okay, let's, let's take a step back for a second. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about Wildstorm in general, the first thing that we have to concede is that this is an imprint that failed. It failed. There's no two ways about it, right? It I'd went... say it just went past its sell-by date. During its A-day, which was, what, good five years from, like, 1999 to 2005? Somewhere in there, yeah. yeah. They had some, as far as I'm concerned, some of the best comics around. I was a big fan of, you know, Planetary, Authority, Red. Uh... Sure. And Ellis's Stormwatch before that was very good, too. And, and technically, ABC, the Ellen Moore imprint, was a sub-imprint of Wildstorm. So if you want to add, okay. like... Top 10 in the first two volumes of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? You know? Sure. It's a good, sure. it's a good batting average. Okay. But then at some point, I think like once it was incorporated into DC proper, it just didn't work out. They had that World Storm thing. They Mor- tried to bring Grant Morrison, who wrote one, one issue. issue of Wildcats and two issues of, of a 40 and then just like went away. Yep. I, I don't even, I think it was, um, Keith Giffen, who ended up finishing it, right? Yeah, yeah, Wildstorm, The Lost How, Years, or something like that. How's that for a jump? So I, so we're starting from a position of this was not an imprint that had a whole lot to offer beyond, you know, it was at the time that Ellis took over and you had this sort of like renaissance of Wildstorm. Before that, they were pretty much just sort of like image superheroes, It right? started as the Jim Lee's studio, yeah. and then when DC bought it and Warren Ellis was brought in, it was like head writer of several titles, it became the place where you do superheroes differently. Yeah. Right? Also, Sleeper screen. by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Sure. And, and these, corporation, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And these were the books that were, you know, pushing all of these. Oh, you had also Joe Casey's uh, Wildcats 3.0. Yeah, yeah. So you had all these books that were pushing the envelope and were being brave and were were making all these creative decisions that you couldn't find anywhere else. In 2000, it's 2016 now. So I'm not sure that Wildstorm has anything to offer Mm. unless this is one of those reboots where the only thing they're taking is just the name. Because well, I no, know because they're using the characters, right? They've mentioned well, Zalat. You, <laughs> out of Zalat all and... the characters in the world, yeah. And I mean, let's put it this way: I, I doubt DC hasn't given up on using some of the Wildstorm characters within the DCU, right? Uh, Apollo and Midnighter number one just came out and did so, well, apparently. Uh, I'm, I've read it, and it's a fun issue, you know. Yeah. Steve Orlando, good writer. Uh, the question is, maybe they're just going to end th- that series with "We're going to a new universe," and that will be like the jumping point. Because uh, other than the Apollo, uh, the Midnight series by Steve Orlando, the other attempts to bringing the Stormwatch characters into the DC was a failure, right? You had that Paul Cornell Stormwatch relaunch, yeah. which didn't work. You had the Grifter series, which I think lasted like eight issues or something. Yeah, it's been like one catastrophe after the other, but I do think there's another part of the equation that you need to consider, which is that Orlando got a lot of mileage out of using DC characters in Midnighter. Specifically, he had Grayson showing up every mm-hmm. now and then. He, yeah. he had, you know, he had the Suicide Squad show up. So there, there was mileage in that, and it did help. I mean, the big twist, a minor spoiler for the first arc of Midnighter, the big twist at the end of the first arc is that the, you know, Midnighter's lover turns out to be Prometheus. So the Batman so, anti, you know, the anti-Batman gets a date with the pseudo-Batman. Batman. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, when you look at it like that, Midnighter specifically, and now I guess Midnighter and Apollo, uh, have benefited from being in the DCU. Hmm. Wildcats, obviously not so much, right? Zealot, not so much. Have you read Apollo Midnighter number one? Uh, no, I'm waiting until the series is complete, but I am looking forward to it. I heard that it was really good. <laughs> they bring back the subway pirates from Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers of Victory. Like, sure. no beard and all beard and, of course, half beard. The man with half a beard. <laughs> <laughs> pirates the subways. Of course. But, I mean, that's that's the thing. I think Orlando is one of the very few writers, mm-hmm. after, like, the dissolution of the Wildstorm imprint, that actually managed to use... The greater DCU for, you know, to fuel his own stories um, instead of it being the big, gratuitous. Uh, the big interest to me is Alice because Young Animal, as much as it's a point of comparison, is also a point of uh, change because Young Animal was, let's bring in the new guy, the young kid, and mm. Wildstorm is, no, 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 let's bring in the guy who made it work the first time around. Now, see, Alice is a point of concern for me because, first of all, when he hit that peak, in the 99-2000. That was 15 years ago. That was a long time. It's been a while since Alice has been on that level. Yeah, I don't... Second I, of all, I, I, we, we disagreed on Alice projects in the yeah, past. But, I don't think no. he's bad. I just think, uh, as you have said before, he tends to sometimes give in to the easy way out. Uh, Not well, just that, This though. is the way I write a character, right? Here's the Warren Ellis creative kit. There's a larger problem, though. It's got nothing to do with his skill as a writer. Is mm-hmm. that, you know, what... Did, I, I'm, I, I'm going to bring it up again. What did New Universal teach us? Maybe, I don't think that Ellis is particularly well-suited to manage a sub-impact. Counter-X That's also wasn't a very good... Uh, yeah, like... When he uh, ran the X-Men titles for a while, he wasn't tends a very to good do, thing also. He tends to do decently with 
his own work, when he is focusing on his own books and he doesn't have to coordinate anything else. To put him, I mean, look, Daniel Way, say what you will about him. So far, the people who Jared are working Way, with him. not Daniel Way. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> not the same The right thing. way, not the wrong way. Yes. The right way. So, uh, Gerard Way, say what you will about him as a writer. He does seem to be able to coordinate, you know, he's, he's been doing well so far with the other writers of Young Animal. I don't know that Ellis is the guy who can nurture other writers and who can manage to keep all these books consistent. And because he, he tried that. He tried to bring back the new universe, right? The 1986, whatever it was thing with the white event and star brand and night mask. And that did not work. It's, it's part of the general thing of comic books, of not letting things die, right? You know, you can't, characters can die. Creators, you know, are worked until they're in the grave and, You know, imprints can't die. We, everything yeah. must come back. Everything must come back. It's 2016 and we have a Betty book. Yeah, Betty Boop book on the shelves. Oh, listen, let Betty have her turn. Actually, it wasn't bad, the Betty Boop run. <laughs> it was Roger Langridge, so, you know. Well, there you go, right? There are still some writers yeah, who can make I'm it like, work. What? I don't think that Ellis is one of them. What? Why do you need Wildstorm? Because here's the thing. Wildstorm as an imprint brought us, you know, different superheroes. And in 2016, mm. many of the changes that he, it worked for happened, right? Yeah. Because at, at 2000 something, you needed to put it on a, under a different imprint to have two gay characters in a superhero book. And now it's 2016 and no, it, you can do well, it in a DC mainstream book. Also the whole spectacle of like the hyper violence and the sex and the, you know, the, the high concepts. And it's like, I think it was pretty telling that at the NYCC panel, when they reported this, they didn't actually say what the hook was for the Wildstorm imprint. Like, how do you characterize it? We know, for example, like they were, uh, when DC was marketing Young Animal, they were talking about how, you know, it's going to be off the wall. It's going to be crazy. Dangerous it's gonna be humans. Dangerous humans and like imagination and madness and all of these how things. How is that not a band? How is dangerous humans not a band? Give Gerard Way a couple of days, he'll get on it. A solo uh, so There you go. So, like, and it's pretty telling that with Wildstorm, they didn't say that. Because I think about it, this would be like as if Marvel were like, yeah, we're going to bring back the ultimate imprint. For what? You've already rebooted your line 500 times. All comics today are, like, super violent. People getting their arms ripped off left and right. You know, uh, uh, there's no, you know, you have, you have an entire publisher that prioritizes high-concept science fiction stories. So it's not like Ellis can bring anything new to the table there, right? Image has, like, 20 books on that level. So it's it, it just seemed weird to me, you know, and kind of telling that they don't seem to have anything that can give this imprint its own identity. Well, it was just a first announcement, and I still have enough goodwill towards Ellis and the Wildstorm brand, I guess, to... I'm curious, cautiously curious, but curious. That's fair. Speaking of things I'm curious about. Okay. I'm curious about something, Tom. So, an announcement that came out adjacent to NYCC is that John Boy Myers has quit DC Rebirth's Teen Titans after one issue, hmm. citing creative differences. And I am very curious to know what those creative differences are. Because what I'm seeing here is what I've been saying all along, DC Rebirth, new logo, old problems. It's right at the New 52 thing, right? Where they launched too fast and the creators weren't, you know, at the same line with the writers or the editors. I mean, I, well, I guess I, I would be 
a little more upset this time around because, like, last time, the person who left because of creative differences was Rob Liefeld. So everyone was, like, good. No, no, there was also John Rosam who left Static, right? And made a point out when leaving the book saying, right. well, I, the editor rewrote all of my stuff and the actual comic that you read and was terrible wasn't my doing because if I yeah. say I wrote it, you know, people will hold it against oh, me. Oh, yeah, and, and the zombie remake too. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, so, yeah, basically we're seeing here sort of the same. And right when we had, uh, what was it, Suicide Squad uh, uh, Justice League crossover that didn't actually involve the writers of either titles? Yeah. Or, or was then, it the Batman crossover? I don't remember. I No, it was a Batman crossover, but also, as far as I know, the uh, Suicide Squad versus Justice League, it's being written by Joshua Williams. And so, first of all, like, Joshua Williamson is not an ongoing writer, to the best of my knowledge, mm. of the bad books. But also, uh, I'm pretty sure it's $4.99. Well, it was $4.99, then they knocked it down to $3.99. You know, same old shenanigans. It's like the it, the turnaround is too fast, and with the double shipping, with the, the double monthly titles, you can't blame the creators for just being like, "I can't do that." You gave me less than six months between the new DCU or whatever it was to rebirth, and I literally I can't draw fast enough, right? But would he have cited creative differences in that? Like the way that he phrased it made it seem like. There was some conflict there. Well, the old joke is whenever creators saying I have a creative difference with the editor is I'm creative and he's not. So uh, <laughs> that, I like that. that. That's the old joke. Right? I like that. So, yeah, basically, I mean, look, I, John Boy Myers isn't enough of a name that I was going to be like, oh, Teen Titans. Let me see how that goes. But it, it does seem like they are still... Because Rebirth financially is a huge success and everybody's falling all over it. But so was the New 52 at the time. Yeah. We remember the days when Aquaman's reorder numbers were higher than the X-Men titles. But that yeah. lasted for six months and then the free dive began, right? Exactly. It, it's so, you know, it, it's extremely short-sighted to be praising DC. Like, for the, I think for the last two months consecutively, they've been taking the top market share. Yeah. And, and I understand that DC fans are excited by that because it does indicate that Rebirth so far is successful. But the flip side of that is, look... You know, you have to look at the history here. You know, you have to understand how these trends work. If we are here six months from now and there's going to be like, instead of rebirth, it's going to be afterbirth, then I don't even, like, what are you going to do with that? You're just going to start the whole cycle again. And it's still the same people. For God's sake, somebody throw Dan DiDio in a closet and lock the door and find somebody else to run the show for a little bit. And maybe policies will actually change. Maybe when they say we'll hold a line at $2.99, they'll actually mean it this time. Okay. Uh, another bit of NYCC com- actual comics news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lionforge, which is a publisher that I don't think we've ever mentioned in over two and a half years. Because I don't know who they are. <laughs> You mentioned, you said like Lionforge, and I was like, who? <laughs> well, uh, Lionforge had two major announcements. The first is that they've acquired the rights to Magnetic Press. Now, Magnetic Press does usually imports of high end, nice hardcovers of European comics, like the Love Series, which is a series of silent comics about different animals. So you have like a big, nice album called Love the Tiger, which is, well, the story of a tiger in the jungle, right? And Doom ah. Boy, which was nominated for the Eisner Award, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Now, Lionforge, on the other hand, are the people best known, and if they are known at all, for doing adaptation of the 1980s stuff that even Dynamite and IDW are like, no, 
like Ugh. the Punky Brewster comics. Ugh. But then again, as we've said in our pre-talk before this episode, it's 2016 and Jam and Power Ranger comics are not only a thing that happens, but a good thing that happens. So uh, we, okay. without reading it, who knows? You know, it could be uh, great. I will stipulate that mm-hmm. much. But I do think like we, we have brought up Jem very frequently as an example of a successful reboot of a nostalgic 80s property. But the thing that we have to keep in mind when we do that is that Jem is successful because of its talent. Yeah. We cannot overlook the fact that without Kelly Thompson and Sophie Campbell, if there had been a less uh, creative and, ex- and am- amazing artist, and if the writer had not been up to par, this might, you know, Jem might have just been another one of those books where it's like, uh, I don't even know why they bothered. Same thing with Kyle Higgins now in the Power Rangers. I have not read the, I'm the kind, main I'm, I'm kind of wondering yet. who's backing up Lion Forge because where do they get the money f- for buying a different imprint? I have no idea. And, and like, the other big announcement, again, from Lion Forge is that they're starting their own superhero universe called oh, no, Catalyst no. Prime. And oh, they've already hired a bunch of creators and some of them are pretty big names. They have Amy Chu. They have David Walker. They have uh-huh. Alex DeCampi, uh, they have Joe Casey, and Christopher Priest. They have Christopher Priest? They have Christopher Priest. Christopher Priest knows who Lionforge is? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bunch of big names. Wow. It's the, a, uh, okay. Not like, okay. like the biggest names in the industry, but those no. are familiar names. Those are like, I mean, you know... You, first of all, you have like a very... In- first of all, they're pretty diverse. Yeah, know? yeah. Like Amy Chu, David, David Walker. Walker, Chris Priest. Oh, okay. All right. Holy crap. I might actually have to find out who Lion Forge is. Yeah, 2017 might, like- might be the year of the Forge. <laughs> the year of the lion. Uh, speaking of surprise announcements about comic publishers at NYCC. So I'm going to read you a list of names, Tom. Yep. Ed Brisson. Hmm. Ryan Ferrier. Oh, Teeny Howard, hmm. Kurt Pires, yeah. Fabian Rangel Jr., yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris Sabella, hmm. and Rob Liefeld. Nope. <laughs> are launching a new crowdfunded publisher. Two-headed Now, press. Well, see, all of the heads are in one way, and then Rob Liefeld in the other. Th- those aren't heads. Those are the breasticles of a giant man. <laughs> It's just an odd... Now, the idea, <laughs> the idea is that it's... They're calling it a publisher, I guess, but it's not... It's like a creative... It's mm, a platform. Yeah, it's a creative platform. It's like, I don't know, Periscope Studios. It's just a bunch of guys who work together to support each other on Kickstarter. Now, yeah. I'm interested in... From two reasons. The first is that four of these creators are people that I really like. And, you know... Really? I, I, I'm not a big fan of Chris Sabella, but, you know, he's fine. And I really like... I really like Kurt Piers, and I really like I really love Fabian Rangel Jr. and Ryan Friere. So you know, but see, this is like I'm looking at this list of talent, and we have reviewed works by most of them. But I mean, when we were reviewing Ed Brisson, we weren't blown away. Kurt Piers was really average. Sabella, you know, demonic. Fabian so. Rangel Jr. is responsible for Space Raiders. Oh, and, there you go. And therefore, I knew... forever awesome. And Ryan Friere did Dave. Yeah, that's the thing. Like Friere was the only one who I. knew that I liked his work. And even then, not everything that he has put out has What, been on the level of it's Dave. Not, but it's not about these talents specifically. What's important to me is the, the idea that these people believe that the market, that the comic market is strong enough to support their work, not only outside of the big two, but outside of any publishing structure whatsoever. 
Well, look, when you look at publishers that have tried this tactic before, right? Like the people behind Fresh Romance tried it. Um, it worked for Fresh Romance, right? Uh, well, as far as I know, they're only eight issues in. Right? Well, and, and no, been... it was popular enough to be bought and collected by Oni Press. Yeah, but that sort of undermines the whole concept, right? Like, if if you have to be purchased ultimately by a mainstream company in order to survive, then you're not really crowdfunding. Like, you're basically well, just no, you're crowdfunding holding position. the first effort, and then if you want to go yeah. to the stores, you know, you need you need distribution network. You still need diamond, but the idea that the first push can come from outside of that market. Uh, yeah, but I, I don't. I'm less convinced that that is a viable tactic because what it ends up doing is, you know, again, like in the case of Rosie Press specifically, they put out six, seven issues at not even remotely a monthly pace right now. Some of these, they were good. They were bad. They the were first all three that I got were at a monthly pace. Yeah. And then afterwards, it's just oh, sort of well, like I stopped reading. Hell. So, yeah. So we have these situations where the the they can't maintain the level of output that uh, that is expected of a mainstream publisher right and yet they are using crowdfunding they are using they're trying to appeal like the whole idea of crowdfunding is that you are appealing to an audience that is meant to see you as someone who is standing against sort of the mainstream because if you had to choose between the output of a crowdfunded publisher and marvel at least you know that with marvel you'll be getting your books on a monthly basis it really will drive it Mar- will drive Marvel. you it will drive you rocketing to the poorhouse but you will get it on a regular basis well it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because just as you've talked i've got my print collection of medicine you remember we reviewed the sure, first issue medicine. Of medicine and the issues came out on time it's a question yeah. it's a question of you know it's a question of skill it's and, a question of, uh, of resources and of pacing yourself right and it's a problem not only with kickstarter creators right because we've talked about image god knows uh, problem yeah. with pacing for a while I mean, look, theoretically speaking, I think it is possible. Like, think about it this way. The, you remember the Veronica Mars film? Yeah. Crowdfunded, right? Video games, I have seen video games be funded with, like, millions of dollars past their stretch goals. Oh, it yes, can be done. number nine. Tell us how it went. Oh, well, that didn't work out very well. But Pillars of Eternity, which got, like, $4 million, $5 million, $6 million on Kickstarter, was fantastic. You know, you you win. As with anything on Kickstarter, you win some, you lose some. Mm. Mighty number nine is not indicative of anything. Yeah. But by the same principle, like, theoretically, it is possible to say, okay, if you are able to crowdfund us, we can get this and this and this and this and this talent, and we will sit down together and we will have these books, right? Sort of like... It reminds me a lot of, structurally, the idea of when Archie tried to do the Kickstarter, right? The Archie Kickstarter failed because the company had, like, the perception was, you have money. You don't need us. And, well, that and they asked for too much money for too little product, right? Yeah, and the books were already in the worst. Like, we already knew. No, but asking too much for too little is something that ruins even people who are considered small talent. Yes. You remember when they did the Usama Tezuka reprints? Oh, yeah. And yep. they asked for like $50 for like a small actual physical comic and like pay $30 and get a PDF. Yeah, nobody was going to do that. So it, it can be done, right? But the problem here, I think, is that when you look at the talent that they're heading, the biggest name on their list in terms of like reputation and, and past quote unquote successes is Liefeld. Mm. Everybody else, like, Brisson and, and Pires and Rang, even Wrangle, like, you know, Space Riders, I know you love it, but it's not like that book 
burns at the top of the uh, sales shelves well, and everyone's in awe. That's because the internet is composed of fools. Yeah, well, that too. But also, like, you know, these are names that have not traditionally Strangely been... enough, Rob Liefeld, not a good writer, not a good artist, no. actually turned out to be pretty good at at least allowing talents to do as they please. Because you remember when he gave the rights to Glory and Profit to Joe Kidding and Brandon Graham, and it turned out some of the best comics of exactly. the last five and years. So Rob Liefeld might actually be pretty good at just, you know, working with people. And I'll tell you something else. And I don't often say nice things about Rob Liefeld, right? But I will say this for him. The men let Joe Keating and Brandon Graham do their thing, right? There is no illusion among anyone that the subsequent works that they put out were better than Liefeld's. Liefeld never, as far as I know, opened this trap to disparage them. It was always like they took it, they did their own thing, and I'm fine with oh, it. Oh, he supports good comics. You know, we, uh, he, he's a big supporter of stuff like a, a hip-hop family tree and Transformers versus G.I. Joe out of all things. Yeah, so, well, I guess unless it involves homosexuality, because he did say he wanted to retcon Richter and Shatterstar. But at the end he didn't, right? He, well, he didn't because Marvel is not going to call up Rob Liefeld and say, So, Rob, would you like to write a book for us? No, thank you. We, they don't need him. So, again, like, he he does manage to get along with other talent, which I think is important. Like, if you're yeah. going to get all these people together and you expect regular output to your readers, you have to have, like, some kind of functioning network. You cannot be, like, all cloistered in different parts of the world and maybe the script will show up and maybe it won't. I'm generally, I'm always happy whenever we have a new announcement of a new publisher because it tells me that people are certain enough in the viability of the comic market to support them and to allow new work to, emer- to emerge outside of the big big two and then big four. And now we're at the age of the big six, right? I don't know if I go that far. Because it's, it's Marvel, DC, Image, Dark Horse, IDW is for sure because I think they're bigger than Image in sales term right now. And maybe even boom. So, you know, well, the, the, idea the last time, the the last idea time I checked the market, market share by two is companies ahead. is dead, right? Nobody, um, nobody, you know, image is only in the, but when, when people talk about creator owned comics, they're not actually in the, in terms of sales and recognition. They're huge. Yes and no, because I, like the problem I think is that it's, I mean, look, the, the narrative of, you know, breaking the, the stranglehold of the big two is incredibly appealing. But we do have to remember that taken in unison, Marvel and DC today hold, I think, either 70 or 80% of the market share. I, uh, they hold 70% of the market share of like, 70%. you know, comic, comic book stores. But okay. who sells more at bookstores, right? Who's, I don't who's, know. Whose paperbacks go all over the wall in borders and such? Sure. The, I mean, the book market is, not something that Diamond ever takes into account. And that's probably a good thing, right? It means that Image and all of these other companies can get out there and can do these things. But within the direct market, it's always so problematic to say, you know, now we're living in the age of the big six because, you know, factually speaking, there it has there ever been a month where an Image book outsold a Marvel or DC book? Well, sure. Every time The Walking Dead reaches a, a new, like, 50, 50 yeah, issues or so. Yeah, like, once in a blue moon, right? It's not like regular issues no, of The Walking Dead. No, but, you know, Dead regular issues of The Walking Dead are, in, are like, in the yeah. top 70s, and so is Saga. Yeah, so it's like, they do well for themselves. I'm not saying that they're not. Like, Image is doing very well And also, well right again, we its... don't know anything about digital sales, so... 
Yeah. Do, do does Saga sales better at at uh, Comicsology? I don't know. I have no idea. I would hope so. I I, I would. I would want hope to so. believe so. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it's still ongoing and that Image is still, you know, putting it out tells me that it's successful because they don't have the problem pulling pl- plugs on books that aren't. Mm. But oh well. I mean, look. I wish them luck. I, but I have to be honest here and say that the talent doesn't blow me away. Like, the Lionforge list of talent did catch my eye, right? You got Christopher Priest, you got David Walker, you got Amy Chu. Like, these are people whose qualities as writers are known to me, and I know that they're good. I'm going to get excited about Ed Brisson now after reading, like, three of his books and being like, eh, competent, not much more than that. Yeah. You know, so it's it's tough. But we'll see what, you know, we'll see what they do. If they put out something that is worth discussing on that level, I'll be happy. Movie and TV news? Movie and TV news. What have you got? Uh, let's start with Wolverine 3, now known as Logan. Do you care, Tom? No, not really. We had the first poster and it shows uh, Wolverine hands grasping the hand of a small child. And they, They've confirmed that it's x No, it could be an adult because, you know, Hugh Jackman is a big, big man. So it could be just <laughs> the hand of a regular person. And Hugh Jackman is just like, he's, he, have you have you rewatched the old X-Men movies over the last two or three years? Um, I saw the first one a while back, and he was very... He's, he's like, he's so small and trim there, and it's like yeah. he's getting bigger and more pump every single movie. It's, it's I mean, something I know that I saw a comparison image of, like, there's there's a scene in the first X-Men where he's running down this hall shirtless, right? The second and X-Men. He, no, 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 it's the first one, when when uh, when they pick him up after, like, uh, Sabertooth oh, yeah, and yeah. all of that. So he's running down this hall shirtless, and he looks... Normal. Well, I say normal. Like, he looks normal size. Looks like, you know, a guy who exercises. Just a guy who exercises, but not like, you know, regular sort of thing. And then they compare that to the, uh, the nude scene from Days of Future Past, where it's like there's veins everywhere, and it's like, what the hell is going on? They paint him green and he's re- ready to play the Hulk. Oh my god, it, it was insane. So they have confirmed that this child's hand, that's like, X-23 is gonna be in this movie, but like, X-23, I have... X-23, right? X-23, yeah. Ah. So, so I have to ask, like, Regardless of if it's called Wolverine or Logan or Old Man Logan, do you care? No, you know not I mean? really. It's James Mangold again. And <sighs> I, the, out of all of the Wolverine movies, I would say the best compliment I can give is the second one is competence. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I'll, I'll, I you know, it admit, has ninjas. I like, I like ninjas. I, I like the Japanese one. I'm not crazy about it. It's not a movie that I'll ever go out of my way to like rewatch and be like, Oh my God, this is amazing. If you're but, cooking and it's in the background, it's fine. Yeah. And, and like, let's be honest, it gets a lot of leeway for not being Wolverine Origins. Well, everything gets a lot of leeway <laughs> for not being Wolverine Origins. Anyway. So speaking it, of it, movie it's news. It's supposed to be the last. Uh, you Jackman movie and, you know, speaking it's of things time. that should have ended a while ago, because, yes. you know, I love the guy, he has the charisma, he has the looks, he has the chops, but 15 years as one character is more, I think it's the longest time that anybody ever played the main character in any role, like, right? No James mm-hmm. Bond was, was on for 15 years, as, uh, Christopher Reeve as Superman was, like, for 11 well, years? The- well, the question is, like, there's years, but there's also movies, right? Well, he was in all of the X-Men movies except the last one. And, so and that's five. No, he was in the last one, too. Oh, right. Um, so, no, he wasn't in... The, uh, Apocalypse. In, he was in, in Apocalypse. The, in, the, in the first class, he was only in there for, like, two seconds. So I guess you can say... Uh, still counts. counts. 
I mean, he was in there for two seconds, but, like, that is the scene that everyone remembers from First Class. So those are, like, what, seven movies? So we did, like, yeah. ten movies in 15 That's years. a lot. It, it, it's a lot. First of all, it's a lot of films, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's a long period of time playing the same character. Now, uh, the fact that this is his last one, it's like, look, you, you did a great job. I cannot think of many actors who could take your place. But maybe, you know, if Marvel's doing well right now without, like, the regular Logan back, they only have the old man, maybe we don't need Wolverine for a while. He yeah. can go away for a little bit. And, and, and maybe have, come... have you read uh, the new all-new Wolverine title, the one with X-23? Yeah. Oh, you know, I read the first arc, and it was like, I, I sort of liked it. But... I, I really liked it. And then the, the second arc is great because they bring in Squirrel Girl as, like, Their team up, and she is basically Daria and her cheerleader friend. Yeah. You know, in terms of personality, it's great. Yeah, but then it, it doves, okay, now I remember it dovetailed into Civil War II, and I was like, nope, not having I, it. I think, I think Tom Taylor is doing uh, great work with a very yeah. limited options given to him. Fair enough. Uh, speaking, speaking of, of Marvel. Yeah, so Forrest Whitaker will be joining Black Panther. Hmm. He will be playing, uh, Zuri, who was one of the, Elder Statesman of Wakanda, he was introduced all the way back in the first issue of Priest Black Panther Run. Mm-hmm. He was a very big, muscly dude, so not very loyal in terms of presentation, at least. I don't think that matters, though, yeah, because yeah. Like, Whitt- Whitaker is a phenomenal actor. Like, well, I... well, no, no. Whitaker is a, fan- is a Nicolas Cage actor, which means he's phenomenal he? 30% of the time, and 70% of the time, his crap in crap movies. I must have been lucky then. I've only ever seen him in like good ones, well, I guess. Well, you, you haven't seen like, uh, the last, the punching, mo- punching movie, the boxing movie he was in in like two years ago, ha- not Hands of Stone, uh. Creed? No, no, Left, Left, uh, Left Hook, uh, Southpaw. He, no. he was, he was playing the trainer role and he was terrible or like vintage point where he's good huh. in a good role. And he's terrible yeah. in a terrible role. Uh, he's like, I mean, he's a completely director's actor. He's completely uh, dependent upon the quality of the movie. I've never seen him give a good performance in a bad movie. He only gives good performance, good performance if the movie around movie. him is good. As far as yeah. I, I, I never I mean, that's, seen that's been my experience with him. I can't think of many, like, I haven't seen him in a lot of, in bad movies. I guess because I don't, like, go yeah. out of my way to watch bad well, movies. Well, you're not, you're not a movie critic at your yeah. sports <laughs> time. You don't, <laughs> you don't have a movie podcast forcing you to watch. Oh, And all the new movie every week. Yeah. So. so like that was, that was a casting announcement that I received happily. But mm. there was another casting announcement, uh, where you could have scraped me off the ceiling. So basically what happened was that, uh, at NYCC, uh, they were doing an Iron Fist panel. Yeah. And talking with the characters, you know, Colleen Wing is going to be in this. Madame Gao is in it. It looks fine. I'm still not crazy about the, the Game of Thrones guy who's playing Dan- Danny Rand. I don't know what that whole deal is, and I'm sort of slowly coming around to it. It just is what it is, right? But at some point, uh, Charlie Cox shows up, and then Kristen Ritter and Mike Coulter. So you have, like, the four cast members of the Defenders on stage together. It looked great. It was fantastic optics. Everyone's going out of their minds. And then Jeff Loeb is like, okay, so we haven't introduced the villain of the Defenders. And the audience is like, now I'm watching this like live reaction, right? The audience is like, what? Who? It's like, yes, she is here tonight. And then, of course, there is this gasp of like, did he just say she? Is there actually a woman character here? Okay, fantastic. And then he introduces the villain of the Defenders, being played by Sigourney Weaver. 
Tom, you could have clawed me off the ceiling. I was screaming my head off like a cheerleader. Sigourney Weaver, one of my favorite actresses, is the main villain of Marvel Defenders. And I didn't say who she'd be playing. And you know that in my heart of hearts, like, I wish I lived in the alternate reality where she was playing Victoria Von Doom. But that's not going to happen. So they're not really sure... They're not really sure who she is or who she's going to play, but um, regardless, I have to be completely honest. I mean, it's freaking Sigourney Weaver. I don't. I, I just hope that they don't have her be a politician. Like, if you're gonna do this, have her be like Mephisto or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, let's go off the chain because she's she is still, after all these years, an amazing actress, incredibly captivating. And I am ready. Can you think of uh, any female villain related to any of the four main characters who, you know, Sigourney River could play? Here's the problem. There are many, many female villains I can think of that Sigourney River would be fantastic uh, as. Unfortunately, they all belong to the X-Men franchise. (laughs) Which is really, like, when this was, I, I was having this discussion earlier today. I was just sitting down and saying, okay, every time I think of a major iconic female villain... So who does my head go for? It goes for Mystique, right? It goes for Dark Phoenix. It goes for Emma Frost. It goes for X-Men. I can't think. Like, who who were the major female villains for Spider-Man? Nothing comes to mind. I can't think of Lady Stiltman. Ugh. (laughs) Or or what was her what was the name of that old woman who used to like look into the future and cause all kind of mystical problems? Madam Webb. Madam Webb. She's not a villain. She's not well, I I don't know what she was. Like she was she was annoying is what she was. And like who's the major and and even looking at like the Netflix series so far, when you talk about female antagonists, so we've had Black Mariah, and I'll be talking about Luke Cage on Netflix in a bit. Uh we have like for Jessica Jones, does Jessica Jones have female antagonists? Not really. Does Daredevil? Well, the King's wife. Vanessa. Vanessa? Well, Vanessa was never really... Yeah, I mean, I guess she was in Brubaker's run. But, like... But she's not there yet. And we already have Vanessa, right? Yeah. So, and, like, Iron Fist, I guess you have the Crane Mother, but we already know that Madame Gao is going to be in this series, so... like, Uh, Also, they've cast Micro, some guy called Aben Moss Berach. I don't know who that is. He but... was in Girls, apparently, so I don't know. Right. What so, it means. well, this, this does officially confirm uh, that Punisher will be on Netflix, and they've also said that uh, Deborah Ann Wall will be a major part of the. Punisher yeah, De- show. Deborah Ann Wall will be uh, part of the show. They've confirmed that Karen has like an arc with Frank, which I think is great because they they really did work well together in mm-hmm. season two of Daredevil. But Sigourney, like the, the thing that's getting me here, it's like it could be an original character, right? Sigourney Weaver's character, that is. Yeah. But I, it's hard for me to believe that they would cast a name actress in an original role. When so far, the mo- the pattern that they've been following has been to take actors for recognizable roles. Like Vincent D'Onofrio is Wilson Fisk, right? Alfred Woodard is Black Mariah. Like these are characters who have uh, canonical connections. Hmm. I don't know. This is why like my head immediately ran to Mephisto because it's like... The, the way you might get around this would be to gender bend one of the existing major male villains. And I think Mephisto has fought the Defenders before. Granted, they weren't the yeah, same it's Defenders. Yeah, not, not remotely the same Defenders. I know, I know, but listen, I mean, if we're talking creative, you know, creative licensing with existing properties, you might as well. I don't know. I mean, it, it could also be a villain that connects the Netflix series to the films. 
But I don't think that they would do like that. Like a Hydra main operator? Uh, what's oh, her God. Not Ma- Hydra Madam Hydra again. or whatever? Nah, another Madam Hydra and, or oh, Viper. Wh- was, she, was she in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I have no idea. Madam Hydra turned up in uh, a- Agent Carter, second ah, season. Okay. So, like, they've done that already. Ah, okay. I don't know. It's It's... Like, I don't want her to just be another politician, right? Like, if you have an opportunity here to use Sigourney Weaver, give her a big name. Give her something that's worthy of her. Uh, speaking of Luke Cage, you have watched yes. it. I have not. Okay. <sighs> so... The reviews in general were like 50-50. Yeah, uh, and I know what 50 people, Just about everybody praised... Uh, most of the secondary characters and the music. I heard m- many, many good things about the soundtrack. Okay. The music was great. Mm-hmm. In terms of secondary actors, mm, no. I would say uh, most of them were not so good. So basically how this breaks down is as follows. Um, Mike Coulter did a great job. You know, as Luke Cage, he's not served well by the script, unfortunately. Like, they really just don't know what to do with him at a certain point, and there's flashbacks, and, and and it takes him, like, ten episodes to actually stop being passive. Actually, I'd say the MVP was Rosario Dawson as Claire, because she has a fantastic arc. She does really good work. But um, when you look at the villains, you know, so you have Cottonmouth. The, the actor did a great job, but I, I'm not going to spoil, but let's just say, like, it's not a substantial role overall. Uh, Alfre Woodard as, as Black Mariah is a crushing disappointment, and she's a really good actress. So I have to attribute this to like bad scripting, where she is this politician who keeps repeating the same slogan over and over and over and over again. She has no other motivations. She goes ballistic one episode, and then it's like that is it. It is never mentioned again. Uh, Theo Rossi plays this henchman called Shades who spends 13 episodes, some the entire 13 episodes, taking off his glasses and putting them back on. The entire time, all he did was take his glasses off and put them back on. 13 episodes. And So it's like, like a drinking main... game in the form of a TV oh, show. God. You would have liver failure halfway through. But, now this is the, the one that I was pissed about, Tom. I was mad about this one. Mm-hmm. Was Simone Disick as Misty Knight. The actress, again, like, uh, these are good actors. I believe that. Like, I see them performing these roles. I know that they're good actors. But Misty Knight got screwed over on this show so bad. I don't know who the character pisses off in the, in the screenwriter's room. But my God, she spends the entire season, uh, like, when you try to reconstruct her character arc, it makes no sense. She starts off. Having a one-night stand with Luke Cage for unknown reasons. It's never explained why. She's just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Then she's a cop who pesters him for like five or six episodes, convinced that he's guilty for no reason, no logical reason whatsoever. She just has a feeling that he's guilty of something that he has nothing to do with. She spends the next half throwing irrational rages and screaming at people and, and failing utterly at her job as a police detective. And uh, it was just, like, unbelievable how bad she was. And I'm like, this is Misty Knight. What are you doing? Hmm. Oh, it was, I was uh, just, just The story was I'm, a mess. Overall, when I think mess. about the Netflix verse or the Netflix Marvels or the Defenders or what have you, I, 
I don't think I'm committed to that thing at all because I've never actually finished watching Jessica Jones. I was like, yeah, it's it's okay, and then I like passed out after three episodes. I've I've we've watched both episodes, both seasons of Daredevil, but by the end of the second season, I was like. I think I'm done with this. I just don't care enough. And what you and others have been saying about Luke Cage doesn't make me want to watch it at all. Just well, I'll tell, I'll I don't tell you think, what the I, thing it, is. It's not like it's it's terrible. It's awful. It's just uh, no reason for me to be committed to 13 hours of this. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. There's when it comes to Marvel pop properties specifically, just in terms of like what they've been doing so far in the field of Netflix and in the field of cinema, right? There comes a point where they hit a low spot or they make a mistake or they make some kind of creative gaffe that sort of diminishes enthusiasm. I'll say like flat out Jessica Jones is amazing from top to bottom. Like it's really, it's well written, it's well acted, it's well directed, everything is good there. Second season of Daredevil, right, we were talking about it and, you know, it starts off well and then the damn ninjas and the black sky thing and Electra sort of tank it. But what we learned from this is like, look at how reactions changed between Age of Ultron, Ant-Man, and Civil War, right? Like, after Age of Ultron, my quote-unquote confidence in Marvel's output was like, geez, are we going to start seeing, like, the downhill uh, deterioration now? Because here we go. That's usually how it works, right? You you make a, a bad creative decision, and it all goes downhill from there. And then Ant-Man came out, it was fine. Civil War came out and it was fantastic. And you're watching these things and it's like, okay, so these are models in which when something isn't successful, and I'll say flat out that like I can see myself re-watching Daredevil and re-watching Jessica Jones and still enjoying them. Luke Cage, never again. It really did not work for me on any level. But that doesn't... Because of the nature of the way that they create these things... It's like, okay, so Iron Fist is going to show up with a completely different cast, completely different premise, completely different directors, different showrunners. I might as well. Like, you know, it could end up being amazing. It could end up being average. It could end up being bad. Like, there's there's no predictive model here because of all of these different creative voices and actors and different factors playing into each product separately, right? Like, even Defenders is not going to look like anything that came before it. So on that level, it's always sort of difficult to reach the point where you're saying like I, I just don't want to commit to it i'm like look don't watch luke cage if you if it doesn't sound good and you don't think you're interested don't bother you can actually skip over it because luke cage was in jessica jones and did a great job there so you already know who the character is so if he shows up in defenders you're not going to be like uh who are you hmm. right and it was the same principle with um with civil war right i will never in my lifetime rewatch age of ultron i don't need that experience like the movie's two and a half hours long, longest four hours of my life. I do not need to do it. See, again. I prefer Age of Ultron to Ant Man. I really do. But do you prefer Age of Ultron to Civil War? Nah, nah. Exactly, right? Like Civil War did so much right that Age of Ultron did wrong. So and when you see that, it's like, okay, so clearly it's not as like in most other serial forms of television and most other film series, when you pass the peak and you start going downhill. I can only think of maybe half a dozen examples of people like turning that back around. Yeah, usually P- P- when... Pixar is doing a pretty good work in yeah. like, turning back the clock on their post Cars two uh, output. Yeah, but you know, if you think of a television series that goes on for six, seven seasons, eventually it just goes to crap. It usually does. So 
that, but those are situations where, you know, it's the same actors and same showrunners year after year after year after year. So maybe deterioration is inevitable. I don't know. The entropy theory of television shows. I, I have no idea. With the Marvel paradigm specifically, they seem to be defying that only because they're using different creative teams for every show. If it had been like the same director and the same actors and the same everything from Daredevil through to Iron Fist, you'd be sick of it at some point. But here, like, you know, Age of Ultron came out, didn't do that well. I was not, you know, it wasn't a very good movie. They booted Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon is not coming back to do any more Marvel movies. So I feel like... I don't think he's crying about that at all. Well, listen, he's still a little salty about it. You can tell when he talks about it. But, you know, vaya con Dios. He can go do his own thing now. And the next person who takes the reins, like, you know, right now we're still with the brothers who did The Winter Soldier. And they did Civil War and they did a great job. So maybe, you know, the next movie that they put out, I'll be there. Even if the one... Like, if Doctor Strange turns out to be crap, I'll still go see Thor Ragnarok, right? Yeah, because I I love Kate Blanchett, so I can sit there and see her be hella, and I'll be happy. Uh, ju- just FYI, I've actually watched the new Taita Waikiki movie, The Hunt for the Wild People, and he's not a one film wonder. No, I didn't think that he was. Listen, yeah. like it's not it's not sh- nothing would be as funny as what we do in the shadows. Yeah. It's more like a gentle like comedy drama thing, but he's a good director even when he's not working with outright yeah. funny did, actors. Did you see the Civil Thor? skit that he yeah, did yeah so okay like that is the kind of humor that he does so like that's the, that's exactly the sort of disconnect here between something that's supposedly serial right i don't know what dr strange is going to turn out to be i've been i've seen all the trailers i have no clue how i will feel sitting in the studio watching it if it turns out to be a crappy movie because i hate benedict cumberbatch anyway so if it turns out to be a lousy movie i'm not going to sit there and being well marvel is ruined forever i'm just not going to bother it's like no i'll just go to the next one Okay, so that's TV news, that's movie news. Uh, shall yep. we go on to review comics? Let's go on to reviews, and if we're talking about Cage, mm. then let's talk about Cage. Despite all your rage, you're still just... <laughs> I had to. Uh, Cage, with, a, with a number one, written by Gennady Tartakovsky, drawn by Gennady Tartakovsky. That's the creator of Samurai Jack and... Uh, Dexter's Laboratory and Symbionic Titan, a genius yep. of animation. And unfortunately, the guy who did those two terrible Adam Sandler Monster Hotel movies. But Oh, we don't hold that against Yeah, him, it's though. an Adam Sandler thing. It's fine. And this was the last Cage, uh, the last Cage project, right? It was meant to come out like years ago. But yeah. But then they decided not to do it. But now that suddenly look, Cage is a big name, they're like, yeah, let's, let's go with it. Well, I think it was also, there was, I don't remember how this happened, but it's it, sort it of... It was like Dead, the Deadpool movie where right, somebody leaked the art and everybody was like, this is amazing, you have to publish yeah. it. Every, everyone suddenly remembered that there had been a story about Tartakovsky's cage. And everyone was like, Wait, where is it? Can we have it? Can we have it? And then we're like, yeah, okay. sure. And here's the thing. Uh, cage number one, that's cage oh <laughs> in bold letters, is both well served by the timing because I don't think in any other point in time... Mar- Marvel would have been, yeah, let's do a Luke Cage project by a creator who's well-known outside of comics, but not necessarily popular with the comic crowd. So it's a good thing for that. But on the other end, this project takes the character so far away and so far back, not only from the TV incarnation, but from anything related to Luke Cage in comics over the last 15 years. You know, yeah. this is a whiplash. This is like a neck snap. 
And, and I'm also not entirely sure if it's racist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So the point, we'll, first we'll talk about the plot, as it were, and then okay. we'll talk about the jokes, and then we'll talk racism. Okay. Okay. Uh, so it's, uh, it's 1977, and, and Luke Cage finds himself, for some reason, the sole superhero in New York after everybody, the Avengers, the Spider-Mans, the Four Fantastics, the police are gone. And But not the X-Men. Well, no, and he's, and, he's ganged up, uh, and he's ganged up upon by uh, some of his most fearsome villains, and Luke Cage villains aren't very fearsome, so it includes, uh, like, Mr. Fish, and uh, what's her name? Not Screaming Mimi. Black Mariah? Yeah, it's Black Mariah. It's Black Mariah, right, sorry. Same character from the Netflix. And, yeah, so, uh, and the whole thing is basically like an odd comedic romp where Tartakovsky takes his usual cartoony style and... exaggerated to like John K levels like yeah. this is like Ren and Stimpy art and you know it's funny okay it's it's a it's a comedy comic and it's funny as hell I'm, I'm, the, the page where we do meet the X-Men the only other superheroes in New York made me just laugh out loud and you know where is Jean Grey <laughs> yeah that was it's hilarious or, or you know Luke Cage sitting in a restaurant waiting for Misty Knight And just, you know, seething with anger that she's daring to be late. And they're like, who, who makes Luke Cage, Luke Cage wait? It's, it's, it's just so funny. Okay, it's just so um, funny. And yeah. it looks great. And uh, the designs are super racist. I'm sorry. Like, There, well, the designs are super racist. And also, like, this is actual dialogue from the issue, okay? Glad to see you kids are playing and staying off the streets. And what a difference this brand new ball makes. And then Luke... dunks the ball and of course you know like breaks the basket and like Luke Cage in basketball because he's black? See I didn't care that much because I, me, that was a send up of you know the classic you know the, the hero in the street tells the kids to get along and he fouls up a bit because he's super strong uh, but no specifically the scene where he goes to the police station and he questions the African American criminal behind bars and that guy I'm sorry he looks like a racist caricature That was Ren and Stimpy, like, when he pulls no, no, that out of his clothes. No, no, it's not even Ren and Stimpy. That's, like, R. Crumb. That's, like, 1960s R. Crumb. Oof, oof, oof. And every single criminal in this story, and there's the supervillains, there's the bad guys, the bank robbers from the opening scene, and the guy in the police station, they're all black. Just black ma- made black. one of them white. Why? Why? No, no, no. Look, if you want to do a story about... Blaxploitation? No, not black... Like, no, generally speaking, if you want to do a story involving Luke Cage, it makes sense that you would want to have a predominantly or maybe even exclusively African-American... Yeah, but every single criminal within your first issue, especially when there's like, at the end, like almost a dozen of them, the only guy who's not black is Mr. Fish, and that's because he's green. <laughs> and, I th- I, and I think well no I think I that think also he's a living but, fish but I'm not sure about the origins I, of Mr. Fish so that's the thing I don't know enough about Cage's historical work like his initial appearances uh, these might be like ex- I know that Black Mariah is an existing character I don't know about the others yeah, but yeah. I think that yeah, in, I, the, I, in Mace, the early years uh, I recognize Mace for example okay so I think that in those initial years the villains that Cage fought were exclusively black yeah but again you, there's a certain way to you know there's a limit and there, it might be a fine limit but it exists between caricature and racist caricature and Tartakovsky knows how to tread that line carefully you remember Samurai Jack The opening episode, the one where 
he's forced to go on a training montage within different cultures. Yeah. And, you know, you had, that was, had the opportunity to be very offensive, but it worked because he played it very delicately. So you had, yeah. he was going to like the Saudo Arab culture and then the Saudo African culture and then the Saudo English culture and the Saudo Russian culture. And it was based on, you know, caricature and generalization, but it wasn't offensive. And the well, thing, it, and most of the issue worked for me, but again, the scene in the police station. But no, see, this is the thing. I think that the reason, when you talk about that Jam- Samurai Jack sequence, the reason it's not offensive is because it avoids the whole trap of the white savior trope, right? It's not a situation where a white guy is better at this stuff than his own culture, because Jack is... Japanese? No, it's, it's it's not even... He's never presented as, like, the superior of anything. He's just... He's going there to study. No, but he masters ne- every the, the end single of ne- form of, of every of scene fighting. in that montage. Well, he masters, but he's never shown to be superior. That's important. Like, I no, wanted to is. learn. No, no, I've no, learned. Tommy, you're, you're forgetting when he gets into the... Uh, we're, we're, you know, we can do a little Samurai Jack diatribe here. You're forgetting there's a scene in which <laughs> he... He throws axes at the babushka dolls with, uh, with a Russian fighter, and the, the dolls keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. He's the one who throws the last axe and nails, like, the tiniest matryoshka doll. So, yeah, and, and again, like, this was part of how... Tartakovsky, with his, with that name, he can do the Russian gag. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. Again, like, it works in Samurai Jack. Here, you know. I think he he treaded that line carefully enough in Samurai Jack or when you think about Samurai Jack the episode with the Afro Samurai guy the Samurai yeah yeah which was yeah it was a bit too much but it never crossed the line and I mean look Black Mariah at least Black Mariah in this issue tries to kill Luke Cage by sitting on him yeah to which he responds oh lord that is one big mess of female I mean, uh, I can't believe that's a, that's I'm saying this. That's a fat joke, not a racist joke. I just, uh, well, I mean, listen, I can't believe I'm saying this, but maybe Marvel were right not to publish this until now because holy crap! Uh, no, no. Not... Here's the thing. I think if it it would have been, if it had been published like five years ago, it would have been better because right now, Luke Cage is in the spotlight, and and the show actually made a point. I haven't watched it, but I've read enough about it to you know connect itself with Black Lives Matter and. And not really. Produce, and okay, but trying to produce the character as like an upright African American hero, you know, a proper hero, and you're doing this where he's not not necessarily the punchline, but the whole thing is a joke, and he's part of the joke alongside it. I, I think. Mean, Tom, it, I think. I think. Sense. Just it's the wrong day to publish this book. But even the script doesn't even make basic sense. Like the whole premise of the idea is that all of the heroes have disappeared and Luke is the only one left, except apparently for Cyclops, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler who are running around. So I guess they don't. By the way, uh, it's nitpickery. But does the timeline work for you? Because they're talking about Jean becoming the Phoenix in seventy-seven, but that was later, right? Not by much. I'm pretty sure that she became uh, Phoenix. Oh, okay. I, I thought in... it was like seventy-nine or eighty. Yeah. Ah, well, but th- this is specifically 1977. That's I'm okay. nitpicking to the extreme here. No, if- I-, I think the-, the more important thing is, like, the reason that it's 1977 is because that was when Luke Cage specifically mm. debuted. I think, like, in terms of does there's, it nail... It's, 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 there's a lot to like here. Again, overall, the art is beautiful. The gags mostly work. It's a funny comic. And, uh, but I just... Mm, I did not find it funny at all. I found it, I found it hilarious, but an editor should have gone over it with Tartakovsky and be like, yeah, here's the 
point of contention, then, you know, might you reconsider that scene, maybe? Hmm. I, 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 I really, I left that out. For me, it was one of the funniest superhero books I've read since Kyle Baker's Plastic Man. It really reminded Pla- oh. Baker's Plastic Man, which one of my favorite runs of superheroes ever, but... Wow. Well, you know, Baker wouldn't make that mistake with Cage, I think. I would hope not. Um, so are you coming back for more? I'm going to wait for the collection, but it's like they're not going to edit it, right? It's completed and just they I think cut it, it they cut yeah. it for uh, publication. So it's not if there are problems in the first issue with representation of race, they're not going to I think disappear during no. issues uh, 2 through 4 unless the whole thing takes like takes him completely outside of New York and outside of the whole issue. Hopefully? Mm, kind of hard for me to believe that because the premise is that like he's the last defender of New York City. So Well, he's being kidnapped that... by the end of the issue. So may... Hopefully they're taking him to a place where Tartakovsky won't have to draw more black caricatures. Hopefully? Well, we can be hopeful, I guess. Uh, uh, I will not be... Uh, this is going to be a hard pass for me. I'm not interested. Oh, uh, well, you know, I I can't blame you. I, I I like it, but I really can't blame the people who say no. Okay. So, moving on. Uh, Green Valley number one. This is by Max Landis, Giuseppe Camunoli, Camuncoli, sorry, Sick. and Camuncoli. Cliff Rathburn. This is from uh, Image through their Skybound imprint. I, okay, so I don't like Max Landis. And here's why. I want to quote his letter that's at the end of this issue. Let me say flatly, you have no idea what's coming. Literally none. Nothing can prepare you for where this goes or why it goes there, and nothing you've seen so far has betrayed just how complicated our story really is. Fast forward a little bit and it says, Let me say again, you have no idea what's coming. See, the thing here is, Tom, Landis is a writer who thinks he's a lot more brilliant than he actually is. This issue, Green Valley number one, is about a bunch of knights who are living in medieval times but are using modern speech for some reason. Yeah. Uh, fighting off a barbarian horde, they go back to their castle. Literally led by a guy who calls himself the Barbarian Lord. Yeah. That's how he the- refers to himself in all caps. Okay. So, um, yeah, they, they go back home. They're gonna re- the guy is one day away from retiring. And, of course, the barbarians attack and burn down the castle. So, this issue is completely formulaic. There isn't a single concept here that is executed with anything that appears to be original, graceful, or stylistic. There's no subtlety. There's no subtext. The recap for this issue is, dear listeners, a bunch of generic knights fight off a generic barbarian horde, wake up that night to find their generic castle burning down around them generically. Even the fire is generic, Tom. The one thing that's supposedly unique about this issue, I guess, is the idea that they're all talking like modern talk. But that's not and, a plot point. Yeah, yeah, it's not a plot point, and it's it would have worked if you had a different artist. Because here's the thing: the art is lovely, but when you do the old timey people talk in modern terms and swipe action hero joke. That's something out of Gru the Wanderer, right? And again, the guy called himself the Barbarian Lord, and he's portrayed as like this guy who's nine feet tall at least. Yeah. He's like superhumanly tall and big, 
And you know that's that's a Groot the Wonder gag. What's it doing in the serious comics about serious knights fighting seriously and groping about retirement and doing the Expendables the medieval ages? Tom, you have no idea where it's going. Tom, you have no idea. You have none. I, uh, but yeah, but here's the thing: I don't <laughs> care. And, and, exactly. And you know, it's it's a perfect waste of uh, Giuseppe Camoncoli's time because he's a great artist and Cliff Redborn compliments his art perfectly yeah. and it's a beautiful lush looking story which is not a story well, this we, is exactly... we often we often complain about image comics that they spend the first 22 pages building to the premise it's like this is the end of the of the first five minutes of the tv show this is the one minutes before the tv show or you know before the credits of the movie because this is the the cop whose wife is about to get killed and she dies and swear of vengeance. course and then you have the titles and then the plot starts so this is 20, 22, 24 pages spent on that. Listen, when Hagai and I were covering Superman American Alien, right, the first issue of that, it was the exact same thing, right? Technically competent in the sense that the story flows from A to B to C, and you can see how all of these events are laid out, and the dialogue makes, like, rudimentary sense, and you have some basic idea of who these characters are, but it's not even remotely as brilliant as Landis seems to think. Right, he really does think that this is some kind of revolutionary. You could see it very clearly in the letter, right? This is how he writes, and he puts out something that is as average as it gets. Right, this is there is nothing here that is a hook to bring you to the next episode. I don't. I don't even really understand the world that this takes place in because it's generic medieval country fantasy land. But for some reason, in the opening scene, when the guys are beset by the Barbarian Horde, and there's four of them and 400 of the evil bad guys. Yeah. And the evil bad guys just shoot a volley of arrows, and the guys just swing their swords in the air, and they break the arrows, and then all of the villains retreat? Why not attack? Well, first guys, of all... Do they have superhuman powers? They can, can they actually de- physically defeat 400 people, and do the bad guys know that? So why did they bother attacking in the first place? Shoot one volley of arrows and then run away? Why? And, no, but then, like, it, it, the insanity is compounded by the fact that having witnessed this supposedly superhuman feat, they attacked the castle. Well, they succeed like, pretty what? easily. This is the most yeah. conquerable <laughs> castle in the world. Apparently so, and it's like, where were all of your superpowers before? My house is less conquerable. Are there actually just four working knights there? Really? I I guess. Uh, Is everybody else like everybody else is a literal (laughs) red shirt? (laughs) I just how did this work? Maybe he'll explain it in the next issue, which will be the greatest thing ever, but I don't care enough to try. Exactly. It's like someone needs to give Landis the memo that you know, if you had the biggest twist in the world in the second issue, and the first issue is the most boring, color by numbers, formulaic first oh, issue. No, 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 the colors are lovely. Write. The colors are lovely. The colors are lovely, but they are also by numbers. And <laughs> One, so, two, you know, three. in that case, nothing I can do to help. I'm not coming back for another issue of this. No. Waste of time. Uh, shall we go young? Yes. Young. This is Shay the Changing Girl, written uh, by Cecil Castellucci, drawn by Marley Zircone, with coloring by Kelly Fitzpatrick. And this is the second Young Animal book. Well, the second yeah. number one that we're reviewing. Yeah. So the plot is Lama Shade, who's an alien from the planet Meta, the planet where the first Shade, the Changing Man, came from, is apparently a big fan of Earth, which is like a TV show there. 
and the adventures of the first shade were like a huge story that everybody followed mm. and she decides to escape to earth and she inhabits the body of a comatose uh, human girl who we discover her story throughout the issue in flashbacks and such and she just brings her out of a coma and she sees the world in strange coloring so I'd say this is better than Doom Patrol if only because oh I, yes I have an idea what's going on and it does continue the line of uh, young animal bringing us some beautiful looking book we reviewed uh, what was the Marley Zircon series that we reviewed the first trade off the one with oh. the you know uh, there was this cop who as a childhood worked in like the science fiction TV show oh oh I know what you're talking about but I do not I, anyway she was a great artist there she looks even better here this is yeah this is some amazing work and again Caliphate's Patrick you know this is like high contrast color work where everything is like its own thing and it yeah. works amazingly with the idea of of uh, Loma shade actually seeing reality differently from the human she's seeing like different variations or different levels or what have you yeah and I have to give Castellucci credit here too because she, the way that she writes Loma is really interesting to me like I I had a hard time with Milligan's shade it wasn't always easy to follow but Loma is a, a much Milligan more... series that's confusing? So you, jo- you, jo- you just... Uh... Go figure. But yeah, so the, the thing is, Loma... And this is also a point of contrast with Waze Doom Patrol, as you pointed out. Loma is a character who is very easy to understand. She's very sympathetic. She is fascinated with Earth because television shows from Earth, like radio signals, have reached her planet, right? Planet Meta or whatever mm-hmm. it's called. And it's resulted in sort of this cultural fad of everybody wants to know about Earth. Everybody wants to see, like, the madness coat that the original Shade used to wear. And the thing that Loma wants to do more than anything is experience that world. So she jumps into the body of this comatose young girl, Megan, who, as it turns out, there's a whole mystery going on over there, too, right? The whole idea of Megan... Uh, how she became comatose in the first place. And I and... would give endless credit to uh, Castellucci for not making Megan the unpopular outsider who's, who was just too weird for society. No, no, yeah, no, no. None of that. She was, the, she was like the popular girl. And the, she was. And the reason she's in a coma is like a big... Well, it's not, it's not a big shock because the hints are there early on, but it is an interesting yeah. take on that idea of a character. Yeah, and it, it's also interesting that here, unlike in Doom Patrol, there's a much clearer sense of continuity with the past without being bound by it. Like, in the original, we couldn't figure out, like, what was Wade doing with Niles Calder? It didn't make any sense. He's there, he's playing a piano. It was a joke know. of, uh, hey, yeah. you're not going to understand what's going to happen anyway, so here's an outsider gag, right? Yeah, and here it's like, you know, all of these references to Rack Shade, right? This poet who went to Earth and had all of these Now, amazing adventures. Now, here's the thing, because... We both at least know of the original shade, the changing man, and yeah. I kind of wonder what are these mentions going to do to somebody who isn't aware of the older series because i'm not i'm not, I'm the perfect example of that. I did not read all of well, it well no no i'm not i I haven't read all of it either, but I know the concept, and when she said the other shade you we both realized oh she's talking. She's literally talking about the previous hero of Shade the Changing Man. Yeah, but I, I think... No, would, I think Castellucci presents it... Would people new no. to this won't understand there is a connection I, to an older Shade? I don't think that connection matters, though. I think the success here, as opposed to Doom Patrol, is that even if you don't know the references, it doesn't matter. She explains, like, her narration 
is interwoven with a poem that the original Shade wrote, right? And she says to, like, the, the friend of hers that helps her uh, get the madness code, right? She says it very clearly. There was this poet. His name was Rack Shade. He went to Earth. I want to see what he saw. I want to, you know, and she has all of these expectations that Earth will be like in the 1950s because that's what they know, right? And she goes and she ends up being in contemporary society. So she's like a fish out of water, out of a pool, out of the ocean, out of everything. It's almost and, like a, th- a weird take on, you know, the type of kids in the late 90s, early 2000s who would watch anime and think they know Japan because they've watched, uh, they've watched all these shows. Exactly. And the advantage, I think, here for Kasuluchi is that it's sort of like a double... access point like on the one hand you get to learn more about Loma the longer she's in Megan's body on the other hand you also have the whole idea that Loma might eventually start looking into what happened to Megan because that's the cliffhanger of the issue right like we find out that something went on over there with uh, with like Loma's original body is that part of the story it might be and then you have also the people back on Loma's homeworld who Who are also involved, right? So there are all of these different threads that she manages to weave together pretty clearly. This is Brendan And McCarthy's I, Mean Girls, which is something I didn't know I wanted till I got it. There you go. <laughs> right? With all the shapes and the abstract forms and the animals and the trees with eyeballs and all that. It's, it's very good. It's, this would actually be the strongest number one of the three, I think. Oh, I yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. And I'm, and I'm sticking. It's funny. I've, I'm able to make a much... more full-hearted and, you know, commitment to this issue than to Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol, I'm still on the fence on. I'm like, I need another issue. I don't know what's going on over here. This one, you know, Castellucci and Zarconi really do manage to hit all of the marks to a compelling first issue. And I want more. Did you read the backup story? The I did. Creel's, Creel's Big Surprise by Natalia Hernandez? Yeah, Natalia Hernandez, uh, Gilbert Hernandez's daughter, Her- uh, Gilbert Hernandez does the art here. Well, no, 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 no. She, he does script and inks. She does oh. story and pencils. Oh, oh. interesting. Okay. So I- I'm not familiar with uh, Natalia Hernandez's work. I assume that this isn't her first. It doesn't seem connected. I don't know. It's then possible. Again, that... Then again, we haven't seen enough of Meta, so who knows, right? Well, there's that also, but... See, this is the sort of thing where it could be a situation where Krill maybe was a supporting character in the old shade. Mm-hmm. That might be something where like accessibility is an issue. In the core story, no, I, I don't, don't think it is. So. I think Castellucci manages to hook new readers in because you really don't need to know anything about the last shade for this to work. You know, we have no idea how that story I, ended. I really like the fact that they've put in the, like the character file card of Shade's a Changing Girl. Yeah. Like, exactly. And, yeah, and we don't want to Car- confuse you. you. We want you to know what's going on, to be confused along with the story, not because of it. Yeah. Although, did you notice that there wasn't anything there for Doom Patrol? So that was kind of a problem. Well... <laughs> it's like, could you maybe explain something that's going on in the first one? Well, I'm curious about Cave Carson now, so, you know... I am. Well, see, that's a, that was a really interesting thing. So these, um, these like, one-page summaries, right? The profiles... It's like G.I. Joe Final Cards. Yeah, and I was reading the Cave Carson one, and I'm like, I would like to see more of this. I, I, I do want to read Cave Carson. So I think it was, uh, it's a solid first issue. I strongly recommend it. I'm coming back for more. The backup strip, I don't 
know if it's connected or not, but it's, it's, it's not fine. like it's fine. It's fine. Know, it's, it's, even yeah, if, if even if it's not connected to anything, hey, it's five pages of a fine, funny comic. Yeah, it's a fun cartoonish style sort of thing going on. It's fine. Uh, shall we so, go on to the trade review? Let's go to the trade review. And this is our very second uh, Smorgasbord Classic where we review not something new, not a trade that's just been released, not a, not a collection of a story arc. We're reviewing a classic, well, a classic that just got reprinted in a nice thick hardcover, The Golden Age. Yes. This, this is, is by James Robinson and Paul Smith. Coloring by Richard Ory. And this is one of the cases where I, I insist that we mention the letter John Constanza because if his hands didn't <laughs> fall halfway through this book, claps to him. <laughs> this is the wordiest comic on this side of Chris Claremont. It certainly 1990s is. 1990s queer music is looking at it and going, damn, son. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the Golden Age about, Tom? Well, it's about the gold. <laughs> okay, uh, the Golden Age was a very well reviewed at the time and like sort of a lost classic considered by many because it wasn't reprinted for at least 10 years now. And the idea is that it takes all the DC's Golden Age characters and chronicles their adventures right after World War II ended. And we have like a series of seemingly unconnected uh, storylines that in the end, uh, naturally enough, turn out to be all all together. So it's like, uh, I don't know, post-Watchmen, Baby's First New Frontier. So we yeah. have, for example, uh, Tex Thompson, the America Mando, channeling all the publicity he got from apparently being the man who ended the war by becoming a senator. And he recruiting like the outsider heroes, like the Atom, not, not the guy who grows larger, the guy who's super strong and robot men into a new superhero-sponsored team. We have our man who becoming more and more addicted to his miraculous pill and just spending every single moment possible fighting crime. We have the Manhunter who's constantly on the run, suffering from amnesia, and some people are chasing him for a reason he can't remember. Uh, Green Lantern, the first one, working in a large media company and so forth. Like, there's yeah. many, many characters here. It's four Ooh. issues, but every issue is like 50 pages, so it's more like... Eight issue series. It's a long, it, long book. It comes up to like 200 pages. So this was my first time reading it. And... Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Because I was like, oh, it's coming back and it's very well regarded. And, it's, and you know, uh, James Robinson at the time was one of the bright lights of the DC Universe. Paul Smith, yeah. always a great artist. And this, you know, if nothing else, it's a fine, it's a beautiful looking book. Yeah, it does look good. But, I'll give him okay, that. Okay, here's the thing. This yeah. book is overwritten. <laughs> and I'm not just talking about the dialogue because every single page and panel is running in dialogue, thought bubbles, caption boxes, and really give Costanza a prize not just for amount, but for actually making things legible and clearing enough room for Smith's art and uh, Smith and Ori's art to be seen on the page. Yeah. Uh, but it's not only that, there's this sense of uh, Robinson saying, I'm making a big important point about post-war America, and, and, and I'm making a big important point about family and media and McCarthyism and witch hunts, and it yeah. turns out at the end, no, it's all just a generic supervillain scheme. Uh, I'm not gonna spoil it, but you know, the villain is kinda like, oh, it, it's, it was it, obvious. Uh, it was so obvious, Tom. Yeah, Anyone, it, it, like, it was obvious, like, really? After Anyone all with this like, literary pondering and thinking about, <laughs> you're doing that? 
That just goes to show you, by the way, like... This is like a literal Golden Age storytelling level, and it's not what you were aiming for before, right? I don't know if this happened to you, but when I'm reading it, I'm like, there's got to be another layer to this twist, right? There's got to be a double twist here, because it can't be that simple. And then it is that simple, and you're like, wow. It's, you know, all of that effort, and it ends up with a 50-page punch-em-up. Yeah, and, and... Superhero comes up, gets punched by the bad guy, then the new superhero comes up and gets punched by the bad guy, then they all punch him together. The end. I, I think part of the problem here is that Robinson assumes two things on the part of the reader that might not necessarily be true. First of all, his familiarity with the characters. Tom, America Mando? Who? What? They're talking about Robot Man. I'm like, the guy from Doom Patrol is here? No, not him. Green Lantern is here. Hal Jordan? No, not him. So, like... They're assuming familiarity with Golden Age level characters, Ultra Humanite, but like the the old version of Ultra Humanite. The guy who fought Superman. And not only does Robinson assume familiarity, he assumes affection. And that's a problem. Like I'm reading this and the obvious comparison that comes to mind because it came out like more or less the same time is Starman. Hmm. It was coming out right around the same time that the Golden Age was being released. But the thing with that is, Starman introduces Jack Knight as an entry point to get into all of this history, right? It's always history being viewed from a modern perspective and from a distance, right? Jack Knight talking about his dad and all of his adventures in World War II. But you're not expected to know the details of every single superhero who was in Golden Age comics. This is not Kingdom Come, the retro version. Well, the latter stages of uh, Starman, when he bringing all the old Starman, is like, oh, this is a Starman history tour. But he still, ex- but it's still mm-hmm. the Starman history tour and not like the entire DCU history tour. Yeah, another problem... Like, if this had been limited, imagine like if this entire story had been limited to the Flash family, right? If it had been Jay Garrick, Barry Allen, and uh, like whatever, Max Mercury, Jesse Quick, blah, 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 right? If it had just been them. There are way too many characters in these books. The Golden Age is like swamped and you don't care about any of them. I think that it's not only there are too many characters, there's too many plot points that end up being only skin deep, right? Because you have sort of all of these interesting ideas, like, uh, what's his name? The guy who only became a superhero to write a book about it? Uh, ooh. See, we I, can't remember. There the are names, so yeah. <laughs> many of them, and they all have these generic golden age names. Uh, Tarantula. Yeah. Oh, and, okay, yeah. And it's like, oh, it's an interesting idea that, you know, he... He became a superhero, wrote a book about it, and he's lost in it, right? Because he can't yeah. write the next book. Oh, that's that's an interesting story. But because you have, like, so many other things cramping up style, it ends up just being part of the punch-up. Sure. Or you have, like, the character of Dan the Dynamite, for example, who is, like, he's the sidekick who came back from World War II, where usually it's the other way around. Usually, like, characters like Toro and mm-hmm. Bucky die in World War II, and they don't come back. And here it's, like, the reversal. But then once you get that, it's like, okay, and... Anything else? It's like, it's like any... one of those post-Magnolia movies where they expect, well, if we just put all of these stories together on the page and the reader slash viewer will find connection in his brain and he will think we're so very deep because we've mentioned all of these things, right? We've mentioned them. Yeah. Now, and really, and... if you want like a, a, a use, a more useful comparison to something that is like actually good, you should read the 49ers. Like, the 49ers did this exact shtick of, like, the post-World War II superheroes and everything. Not only did it use original characters, but, like, there was an actual plot line that threaded through the entire book. Mm. And made sense and was not, like, 
the most predictable thing that you could do post-World War II. And again, I'd say the New Frontier, and the reason that the New Frontier worked, it, the New Frontier wasn't very deep within its plot. Again, it was the bad guy. But it never pretended that it was anything other than it was. This was the, the new dawn of an age of superheroes, right? They will banish yeah. the darkness. This tries to be Watchmen, right? This wants to be this deep and literary yeah. work, but it doesn't have the chops for it. Yeah, it's like, American Mando is not Ozymandias. And could never be, right? Like, th- there's no scenario in which you could present this character who... To be completely honest with you, I can't tell the difference between characters that Robinson may have invented for this work, or whether no, they no, no, all... No, they're all... They're all... They're like, all? America okay, Mando but, is a character that existed. Okay, but even if that's true, like, these are not characters that have been... Like, only a handful of them survived to the modern age, right? So, I mean, who am I thinking of here? There's there's Jesse Quick, even though it's not the same Jesse yeah, Quick. Yeah, most of them Jay survived Garrick is like here. the original version of the more famous, of the now the more JSA. famous version, right? The, the JSA. Yeah. Okay, so, but all of these other characters are just like, like Captain Triumph? Who? It's like these are characters who don't... The, the, like, you know, the big, the big character introduction towards the end of the book is Captain Comet. I mean, and, <laughs> no, and that's the I thing. know like Captain Robinson Comet. Is... I'm the only one, possibly. You're the only one who knows who it is. Because nobody but knows. We are, exactly. We are eight or nine reboots past the point where these characters were ever in circulation. So for Robinson, and Robinson writes this story as if we are supposed to go, oh my god, it's Captain Comet. Tom, can you believe it? What kind of twist is that? You remember who? The Nail, Justice League The Nail? Where they yes. built up the whole story for introduction of, you know, the final character. That was an introduction worth building for because when he showed up, people were like, oh, yes, we remember. That was the character we yeah. care about. This is well, just- that was also the whole point of the story, right? Yeah. It was yeah. like you go full circle from, from the, for want of a nail and then you end at the point where, you know, it, it, it there was like some kind of rhythm to it. Here, or it's again, just sort of like you're building up to Hal Jordan taking up the ring. Exactly. Exactly, like the the character of the Silver Age stepping forward. Here, it's just like, let's talk about all of these characters. Okay, but in the space of four 50-page issues, like in the space of 200 pages overall, Robinson does not take the time. And part of the problem is the size of the cast. There are so many damn characters here that he doesn't really get an opportunity to do more than a couple of pages on each. So it's like, okay. Did we really need Tigress? Did we? No! For what?! For what? There, like, there are characters here who serve no purpose. Like, the whole idea of, um, you know, uh, Starman, right? Ted Knight is in this, the original Starman. And he's having this nervous breakdown because of the whole thing with the atom bomb. I'm like, yes, but this is ground that Robinson covered much more efficiently in Starman, where Ted's past actually, like, it mattered to the characters, right? Here, it's just sort of like, oh, it's a sad character, but you know who it is. And, when, and it when, ends up being like, oh, I'm okay with it. Yeah. No, no, dude. Like, you can't, just, you can't just end like that. Oh, I'm okay you can't. with this. You, you can't. And it's because he doesn't have the space. Like, if this had been 400 pages, then well, maybe. No, no, no. Sean, no, no. I, I would have Not died. in this format. No, I, not in this format. The I'm way saying, the like, words it, alone would have killed no, me. I would have died. No, I'm saying, like, if the work had been longer in the sense that he would have been able to stretch out more of the character building and the world building and the exposition so that it doesn't all have to be crammed into like these pages then maybe it would have been a little more coherent right maybe like it's possible like think about it this way 
Hypothetically speaking, right, pure theory here, it's possible to take a Golden Age character that no one has seen in 60 years, reintroduce them to the modern readers, and just, like, build them up again. Oh, it can Agent, be Agents done. Agents of Atlas did it. Exactly. It can be done. But if you are going to do that, you cannot at the same time be trying to tell, like, the overall story of post-World War II America and everything that happened there and what the, the founding of the JSA and all of these things. And it's like... You're you're trying to do way 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 too much in the format of four one shot like a four issue miniseries. See, I'm gonna connect this now to something that I've tried reading recently. Uh, before we went to vacation, I'd say I would give a crack to Jerusalem by Alan Moore. Oh yes, mm. yes. Now I haven't read enough to actually judge the whole thing, not even like a third of it. But it's one of those uh, it's one of those works that again introduces a large cast of characters, and they're all from a certain city, and he's like. By telling all of these small stories, I will give you the spirit of the age and the spirit of the place. And I'm like, it it doesn't just, it doesn't work like that. You just can't tell a series of interconnected stories and expecting something grand will come of them just because. I mean, crap, literary scholars have known that since the freaking Canterbury Tales. You have to have a connecting thread. You can't just be like, yeah, one day this guy farted and then here's another story about the wife of Bath. It's like that. Why? No reason. Just because. You were actually there when this came out, right? I was, yeah. W- was it well regarded then? Was it really as like the big classic? Thing? Well, the thing that we didn't say, hmm. and it's kind of sad in retrospect, is that this book was retroactively branded in Elseworlds. I think after either Zero Hour or the one that came... No, it might have actually been... a. a um, well, this book was ha- 94, right? Or 90- yeah, okay. And Zero so, Hour well, was 96. So. It might have been Zero Hour, or it might have been... Uh, what was the one that came after Identity Crisis? But before Infinite Crisis. I think, no, no, no. It, it was before Identity Crisis. By, de- by the time of Identity Crisis, nobody cared. No, I'm saying that might have been when they, it was retroactively branded in Elseworlds. Ah, okay. To be like, you know, not only is this completely unconnected to anything... But, yeah, because then, you know, that was around the time that Jeff Johns was doing, like, the actual origins of the JSA, mm. when he was doing that JSA run. So... Je- Jeff Johns is a big I, fan of that series, apparently. Yeah, I, I mean, okay. And like, you can I, you can understand why, I, you know, I mutilation the, and violence. Uh, well, I remember that at the time it was coming out, people were sort of... This was before the internet, right? People were sort of... The, the people that I knew that were reading it were like, it's not... It, it was weird because everyone was geeking out over Jack Knight, right? Like, I I distinctly remember going, like, you had to fight people for copies of Starman at my LCS at the time, right? Because it was like, Jack Knight was like this super cool guy and, you know, history of the DCU, whatever. Golden Age, because it was, it was also like prestige format. It wasn't like uh, regular issues. So, I don't know. I, I know that, like, afterwards... It's sort of been forgotten. You know, now they've re-released it and I'm looking at it and it's like, look, we, the, the DCU as a fictional universe, right? Like as a backdrop for stories has changed so ridiculously, just like in terms of its approach to its own history, that this, it, it reads like Kingdom Come, Tom. It reads like an attempt to say something about the DC universe, but it's a DC universe that rebirth or no rebirth does not exist anymore. And, you know, attempting to get invested in like the evil plans of the ultra humanite 
I mean, the last time I saw the human, the ultra humanite was the Justice League cartoon. He was great he was, there. He was great there, but he wasn't this ultra humanite. It was a completely different character. It was like an ape with a giant brain and a spiked costume, and he worked with Lex Luthor, and he liked opera music. You know, like completely different. So it's trying to get you to become invested in the history of a world that doesn't exist anymore, never existed in the first place, like, you know, a fictional world that has been superseded by years and years and years of storytellers that came after Robinson. And even Robinson's technical skills, like, he fails here to give you an anchor character. I can't think of a single person in this book besides maybe Ted Knight. And again, like, he's not... I mean, Our Man's whole storyline was just sort of like, eh... Do I care what it's happens? It's literally to him? one page, you know, in the middle of every issue is just our yeah, man just appearing and, and, like doing his thing. And, and this is like it's the same question you asked me about Shade the Changing Girl except that here it it's like it's the opposite answer. Do, is there anything in this story that would get you to care about them? None. I I cannot find anybody here that I want to follow, right? If this had been the beginning of an ongoing series, I'd be like you can keep it. Even Alan Scott is just sort of like, so they do the whole McCarthy thing with Alan Scott, right? Yeah. And, and, Again, and like you said, skin deep, right? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't do, it's sort of like, it's like a history, I can almost imagine that Robinson wrote this as, you know, let me tell the history of post-World War II America, but post-World War II DC's America. So, so of course, there's the McCarthy. And of course, there's the McCarthy hearings. And it's like, okay, but you sticking fictional characters into these events as if they actually happened and then just letting them happen. But like, okay, I guess. So, you, so, you know, so the McCarthy hearings were still the McCarthy hearings. Superman did not rip off the roof and say, you have to stop. Right? That didn't happen. So it, it's just, I don't know. It, it just fails to engage um, on any level it's it's a beautiful book again paul yes, smith was always way. a good artist this this brings the But, best of him again with richard with richard ori if you want to yeah. if you're a, an art geek this is for you but it <laughs> it covers most of it in words again well yeah there, and there's like, so many why so there's so many scenes where the art talks you know perfectly well and And, and he keeps on sticking words in panels and balloons. Like, I'm for, looking at page no 97 where you have the car flipping off the bridge and into the ice. And, you know, he's saying, no, and then another panel, no, and then another <laughs> panel. He can't be dead. I can see his face. I can read his expression. I can, you know, Paul Smith does great body language. I don't need that. Why? Oh. Why must he speak? It's like when... It's like when uh, Was he Chris paid by the word? Was it's he like paid when, by the word? It's like when Chris Claremont tries to do fight scenes, and so you have the thought bubble saying, he jumped behind me when we can see that he's jumping behind her. Uh, you remember <laughs> uh, there was a great gag about this in Morrison's and Porter JLA, where the future Batman is like, uh, the Batman from One Million is, is kicking the regular time Batman. He's saying, by the time you understand, this sentence is too long for me to have said it, I would have already knocked you out. <laughs> This is a form of martial art that bends time. And by the time you realize I've, been, I've bent the time and, o- and been over-talking, you have been knocked out. It's, it's, like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Overly wordy and, uh, you know, 
tremendous disappointment. And I, I get, I'm like, I'm at the point now where I'm sort of used to disappointment from Robinson. It's a terrible thing to say, but you know, I, I have made peace with the fact that he will never reach the level of Starman again. And this just sort of like reinforces that even though it was coming, like, I don't understand. Was there anything <laughs> other than Starman that really? No, no. Ma- maybe, I didn't... So, you know, maybe he's just, maybe it's, that there was are some, there are some people, wonder. you know, he worked with good artists and it was the right time. And yeah. some, um, who, uh, it's, it's as if the, as that lady said, you know, some people have only one good, one good book within them. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, look, you, you've got even contemporary examples, right? You've got Airboy, you've got Scarlet Witch, Yawn. He's doing Squadron Supreme. Does anybody care? No. What's that canceled? Is is it still ongoing? I seriously don't know. You expect me to know if if a Marvel book is still ongoing? I mean, come on. Um, I'm proud to say that I have maintained my distance from them and I really don't care. But yeah, so the Golden Age. Um, Read the 49ers instead is what I can tell you. (laughs) Like if you have... No, because really, if you want a sense of what a post-World War II would look like in a superhero world... Moore did it better. I mean, I say that as if it's a surprise, right? But like top t- top ten and the 49ers are exactly that. This book goes in completely the wrong direction because you don't care about the characters, you don't care about the circumstances, you don't care about the story, you don't care about the twist, and you know the ultimate revelation is just banal. In like, of course it is, right? Well, that was the golden age. Not yep, yep, tremendous letdown, yeah. but also not really that surprising. I mean. I guess Robinson really is just a one-hit wonder. And this was yet another episode of the Smorgasbord. Yes. I'm Tom Shapira. If you want to and find I'm... me, I am at Tom Shops on the Twitter. And I am Sean Edry. I am not on Twitter. but No, but you have a podcast now, so they can find I it. I do have tell, a podcast. Tell them the name again. Uh, the name is Games of Future Past. Uh, you can find it on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud. We have a Facebook page. If you like video games and you like hearing comparisons between new video games and the golden or moldy oldies that inspired them come on down until next time bon appetit